you're looking for, uh, you know, the news and others' life. Uh, you're doing, you know, what we all love to do, people watch. And that's the greatest thing about social media is it's been brought to a couch near you, right? Uh, you can people watch with the best of them without going to the airport or, you know, amusement park or something. You can just watch to your heart's content. And so you're, you wake up in the morning and you go through your news feed and you are just, you know, kind of seeing what everybody's up to, what everybody's doing. And then the moral dilemma of your day hits you. If you love him more than Facebook, will you share it? I mean, what are you going to do at this point, you know? Uh, you don't want to garbage your uh, news feed up with stuff like this, but you do love Jesus, right? It's proven if you share. Um, another one like this, this person loves Jesus, do you, right? If you do, then you have to share. Or another one, if you believe in Jesus, uh, hit like, uh, and, and that's just a little bit. Uh, if you like and share, uh, then that means you have him in your heart. And if you just write no in the comment below, you obviously uh, don't have Jesus in your life. This next one is my favorite, and this has produced one of the greatest moral dilemmas in my life. Uh, if you love Satan, keep scrolling. If you love Jesus, like and share. I mean, what are you supposed to do with this? We covered the ethics of war. We carried the, uh, covered the ethics of marriage and divorce. Lederbach never dealt with this in ethics class. <laughs> I have no idea what to do. I feel cheated. Um, th the point is, a lot of our obedience many times goes far beyond hitting a share button or hitting a like button. And we live in a sad world that most of us would find it much more convenient to show the love of Christ in our lives by hitting a button, by doing something simple rather than to trust God and to obey. Because obedience is sometimes difficult. If you would pray with me, we're going to be in Deuteronomy chapter 26, and hopefully God will shed his light in our hearts so that we could learn to obey. Father, we thank you for being willing to pursue us, God, when we run from you. Thank you, God, for being willing to show us who you are when we didn't care. Father, thank you for the love that you have lavished on our lives. I pray that our hearts would be changed by the gospel today, that we would walk out different because of an encounter with you. And Jesus, it's in your name and by your blood we pray. Amen. Christ is very clear in the New Testament. If you love me, you will obey me. Sometimes it's not very easy. Sometimes it's not very convenient. And so we see in Deuteronomy chapter 26, uh, as, as um, the legislative section of Deuteronomy is coming to a halt, and Moses is now giving the people some instruction, uh, some commands by God, on the renewed sense and a, a renewed act of worship that the people will engage in now that they're re-entering into the land. And so as we read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 26, uh, we're going to just start with this first uh, section here, verse 11. Um, let me put this on the screen for you. Then it shall be when you enter the land which the Lord God gives you as an inheritance, and you possess it and live in it, that you shall take some of the first of all the produce of the ground, 
which you should bring in from your land that the Lord God gives you, and you should put it in your basket and take it to the place where the Lord God chooses to establish his name. And you should go to the priest who is in office at the time and say to him, I declare this day to the Lord my God that I have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord God. And you shall answer and say before the Lord your God, My father was a wandering Aramean, and he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, but there he became a great, mighty, and populous nation. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. But when we cried to the Lord our God, our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction, our toil, and our oppression, the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with great signs and wonders. And he has brought us to this place and has given us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. on one more time. And now behold, I've brought the first of the produce of the ground which thou, O Lord, has given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you and the Levite and the alien who is among you shall rejoice in all the uh, good which the Lord has given to you and your household. So immediately we see that God is requiring an act of obedience from his people when they enter into the land. A difficult act of obedience. He's asking for their first fruits. Now, this is difficult, you have to remember, because these people were wandering in the desert for 40 years. For 40 years, they wandered in the desert, and their, man, uh, their diet consisted of mostly manna. Um, and although that was a provision by God, and that was God's graciousness to them in the midst of their disobedience, uh, their discontentment and grumblings and complainings about the manna were well documented in Scripture. They wanted the promised land. They wanted something more. And they were ready to walk into this promised land. And I'm sure were regretting their decision to disobey God 40 years before. I'm sure as this commandment is coming, and I'm sure as they eat manna day after day after day, they're remembering the single cluster of grapes and figs that uh, Joshua and Caleb brought back on poles from spying the land. I'm sure as they are uh, eating manna day after day, they're dreaming of a time where God's provision will come into their life in another way, and that they won't have to choose from manna or manna, but they get to choose from the harvest that God has blessed them with. This is a difficult act of obedience that he's requiring from them immediately. After this act of obedience, during this act of obedience, God requires them to not only bring their first fruits, but to, to enter into this celebration and almost this recital of this passage that will remind them, again with the theme of De Deuteronomy, that will remind them of God's goodness to them. In this passage and in this recital, they're required, I think, to remember two key things that's going to lead them into worship. Um, the first that they remember, it says in the prominent, most prominent thing, is that this land is a gift from God. Watch how many times he says this in the first 11 verses. Uh, the same word and the same verb there to give is used six times. When you enter the land which God gives you, when you shall bring it from the land that the Lord God gives you. When we have entered the land which the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Uh, we had brought this place to the land that he has given us flowing with milk and honey. Out of the ground, O oh Lord, that you have given 
me. And the Levite and the alien who is among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord has given you. Six times, over and over again, that these people are required to recite as they're giving their first fruits. They're reminding themselves and praising God that this land is a gift from God. It doesn't negate the fact that the land will still have to be taken by force. Uh, remember uh, that they will still play a part in this gift. Just 40 years before, when they disobeyed God's command to enter the land, that we see their consequences now. So God is reminding them that this is a gift from him, even though they will have to act on his promise to take it. This doesn't negate the effects of sin and that the harvest will still be a harvest of hard work. When they take this harvest, they'll still have to labor for this harvest. They'll still have to grow this harvest, and it will be difficult to get this harvest. But God gives us this gentle reminder that it's his gift. It was this gracious um, reminder that this land was not given because of their merit or effort. And although they had to defeat armies and nations stronger than their own, it wasn't because of their own strength. It was because of God. It wasn't because of their great agricultural skills that they had a harvest to give. It was because of God's goodness in their life. He knew, God knew, that they would be tempted to start trusting in their own resources rather than trusting Him. This was a great reminder that, that God gave the land. It was His to give. It was His harvest to give. And not by their own effort. Sometimes we like to take credit for things. I like to take credit for things. One of my biggest struggles in life is, is that I act um, while I'm praying. It's difficult for me to, to wait on the Lord. And I just find myself struggling to do things in my own abilities and through my own efforts. In, in the ways that I think that they ought to happen. And so I ask uh, the Lord to do things just as a, a teenage son or daughter would ask to borrow the car as they're walking out of the door with the keys. Most of the time, the Lord has to stop me rather than, than, than to start me. And so as we begun this process of adoption over a year ago, the Lord was very, very clear to me uh, that he wanted to do this without me. And I struggled with that because adoption requires lots of finances, lots of understanding, lots of travel and documents and that type of thing. And, and I felt like immediately when he started to, to work on my heart about this, um, like somebody you see on TV that, that their children are, are, are gone because they refuse to take them to the doctor. They refuse to act, um, but they wanted to pray instead. I started to feel lazy, like I was trying to let the God do everything and me do nothing. But he kept pounding me and, and just pushing on my heart to say, just watch me do this. And like many of you have experienced where God has come through for you when deadlines were, were happening in this adoption and we needed money and didn't have it over and over and over again. Time after time after time, the right amount of money would show up time and time again. It was as if the Lord was just saying, just watch me. Again, you would think that I would learn that lesson, but just two weeks ago, we were on a deadline to have this court date, and we knew that the Ethiopian government was going to shut down their courts for a season, and that if we didn't get our court date in just a day or two later, that we would have a, a two to three month delay in our case. 
And so just two weeks ago, I was on the phone with my friend Ed here from church, and I was talking to him, and he was asking about our struggle, and I was saying, you know, we're down to the wire. I'm going to call the agency, and I'm going to put, some, put a little bit of pressure on. I'm, I'm going to remind them that why it's important for us to have a court date. I'm going to tell them that this is a necessity. And before that I could hang up the phone with him, my wife was on the other line saying, we have a court date. And it was just God was reminding me is, I don't need you. I don't need your efforts. I don't need your abilities. I have them. In fact, they were a gift from me. And it's just, if God was saying every time now that I'm going to look at this little girl once we bring her home, and any time that I think that I've done something good or worthwhile or that I'm feeling proud because I've done some good deed, the Lord will remind me that he did this and we did not. That this land and our blessings are a gift from God, not because of our efforts, not even in despite of our efforts, but because he is good, because it's his gift. The Lord wanted to remind them in this passage. He says, though, you shall uh, wander and say before the Lord your God, my father was a wandering Aramean. And he went down to Egypt and sojourned there, few in number, but there he became great, mighty and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and afflicted us and imposed hard labor on us. And then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our fathers. And the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And then the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with great signs and with wonders. And he has brought us to this place that he has given us this place, a land flowing with milk and honey. There's two things that God wants to remind the people of Israel as they're presenting their first fruits, as they're going through this recital. The first is that the land is a gift from God. And the second is that he wants to remind them where they were and their, where they would be if it were not for his provision in their life. Watch how God requires them to recite these things. God, you gave me this land. This land and this harvest is from you. And then he requires them to recite this passage about being in Egypt, being oppressed, being afflicted, and crying out to God as their only hope. He, he gets them and, and requires them to acknowledge their helplessness without God. The children of Israel, you have to remember, there's probably some children in the land um, that don't know what it's like to sweat for Pharaoh. Remember, a whole generation had to be blotted out before the people could enter into the land. So there might be some people here that are 40 years and older 40 years old who have never worked for Pharaoh. They've heard the stories from their parents. They've heard the stories from their grandparents. But there's some children that are entering into the land, some old children as old as 40, entering to the land that have never slaved for Pharaoh. And this is a gracious reminder from God, not just where you were, but where you might be if it were not for God's goodness in your life. The Lord is helping Israel set in their hearts a feeling and an attitude of gratitude. Watch what he says here in, in, in uh, verse 10 and 11. And now I behold, I've brought the first of the produce of the ground which thou, O Lord, has given me. 
and you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall, and you and the Levite and the alien who's among you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord has given you and your household. You see, after they acknowledge and remember God's grace and mercy and God's gift in their life, once they remember where they were and where they would be without God's goodness in their life, then this act of worship starts to happen where not only them, but everyone who's around them benefits from God's goodness in their life. God is setting Israel up to have an attitude of gratitude that extends into a worship service. Uh, the New York Times wrote an article on uh, the quarterback Kurt Warner a few years ago, MVP of the Arizona Cardinals. After he uh, won the Super Bowl in 2000, an idea came to Kurt uh, called the restaurant game. The night before he heads out for a game, Kurt and his wife take their seven children out to eat a family dinner. Once Warner uh, and his family are seated, one of the children will scan the dining room like a quarterback looking for potential receivers. And when the Warner child picks a table, Kurt asks the waiter to add that table's dinner to his own tab anonymously. The idea for the restaurant game, he says, came to Warner and his wife after he led the St. Louis Rams to a Super Bowl victory in 2000. It's a natural fit for them, he says. They, want, they remember the days and want their children to remember the days. Before Warner's NFL career, when Kurt was working the night shift at a grocery store and had only food stamps to feed their children. With that in mind, giving is a joyful family tradition, he says. We want our kids to grow up knowing that because of the goodness of God, through football, we are blessed to give. Warner said we never want them to lose sight of what it's really about. Our circumstances are not the most important thing, he said. It's what we do with those circumstances. See, in this act where Kurt Warner and his wife are, are grateful, they, they are remembering where they were before God's goodness to them in their life in this way. And remembering the gift that he's given to them through football, they remind their children of where they were and where they are now. And not only does this attitude of gratitude extend to their children, it extends to those who don't even know the story. Those whose bills are being picked up by Kurt Warner's wife, their lives have been impacted. Even the small uh, check for a meal. See, when we're grateful, when, when we are grateful for what God has done in our life, it affects those around us. When we remember where we were without Christ, when we remember how the gift that he has given us, we worship. And when we worship, others around us worship the Lord. You can see that happening in Acts 2 where the church is, is being a reflection of God's love. They're worshiping. They're grateful for what God's done to them. And it says, and, and there was many added to the church because their worship was genuine. Uh, after the children of Israel present their first fruits and after they recite this passage, remembering God's gift to them and, and remembering where they were from, they enter into another uh, act of worship where it was the tithe of the third year. Here's what it says. When you finished 
paying the tithe of your increase in the third year, the year of tithing, then you should give it to the Levite. We should note, by the way, that the year of tithing doesn't dictate that you only tithe in a specific year. It's a different kind of tithe. Just want to throw that out there, okay? Um, Then you shall give it to the Levite and to the stranger and to the orphan and to the widow, that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. And you shall say before the Lord your God that I have removed, uh, I have not removed the sacred portion from my house, and I have also have given uh, to the Levite and to the alien um, and the orphans and the widows according to all that you have commanded me, and thou hast commanded me. In, in this act of worship, in, in the, the tithe of the third year, um, Israel was required to bring the harvest into the first fruits in the town to where they would save them, they would store them for those who were passing by. Uh, to take care of the Levite, to take care of the widow, to take care of the orphan, and to take care of the stranger. It was, uh, in a sense, an ancient day feed ministry, where we would take care of the poor, take care of those who have not been blessed like we have been blessed. Um, In verse 14, uh, we're given this text where it says, that I have removed the sacred portion from my house and given it to the Levite and to the alien, the orphan, the widow, all of your commandments. And I have not transgressed or forgotten your commandments. And then he says this, I have not eaten of it while in mourning, nor have I removed any of it while I was unclean, nor offered any of it to the dead. Have I listened to the voice of the Lord my God? And I have done all that you've, uh, according to all that thou hast commanded me. Look down from thy holy habitation from heaven and bless thy people into the ground which thou hast given them, a land flowing with milk and honey. And thou didst swear to our uh, fathers. This verse uh, in, in verse 14 refers to practice, giving it to the dead, eating of it while in mourning, taking of it while it was unclean, most likely was a, a practice done by the Canaanites. But what's interesting to me is that just a few chapters before, God commanded the Canaanites, uh, the Israel, to wipe out all the nations. But even still, he, in this time, he's making a provision, understanding that they would not obey his commands. And saying, when you haven't done what I've told you to do, make sure you obey me here. That, that when you haven't obeyed me, make sure that you are not worshiping God. Make sure that you're not worshiping Baal, the God of the Canaanites. Not only this, but I think the fear was that the Israelites would lean on the Canaanites' understanding and knowledge of the land to grow their harvests. Again, God is teaching the Israelites, I don't need the Canaanites. I don't need their knowledge. I don't need their power. And if you trust me instead of them, you will be blessed. He tells the children to bring this offering to town. And one commentator notes that it's not until they've made this declaration of caring for the poor that they could declare that I've done all according to what you have commanded me. They're saying, because I love you, I've loved the poor. It's very evident in Scripture that we can't separate our love for God from our love for our neighbor. James 2 says this, um, What use is it, brethren, if a man says he has 
faith, but he has no works. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what's necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. Scripture doesn't stop there. It's not that just uh, he is giving this command to give the first fruits to him, to give the first fruits to the poor and to the widow, to the orphan. He adds another stipulation, probably one of the most difficult stipulations. This, this day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and ordinances. And then Moses admonishes the people, instructs the people, and you should therefore be careful to do them with all of your heart and with all of your soul. Moses was warning the people that it wasn't just obedience that God was after. It was their hearts. See, remember that the land was God's. The land was God's before he gave it to them. The harvest was God's before he gave it to them. If you remember just a few weeks ago, Jerry Lassiter, it kind of just taught us well through uh, the Old Testament warfare. And one of the verses that he referenced was that the instructions given by God was to not destroy the harvest in the land, to not destroy the trees and the produce that were already there, but to enjoy them. And so in that, this land is God's already. The harvest that's already mature and ready for the Israelites when they walk into the land is already God's. He did not need their first fruits. He wanted their hearts. He didn't need their offerings. He wanted their hearts. By asking them to give up their first fruits, he was asking them to give up their self-dependence. Asking to trust in him and not to trust in harvest that they could predict, that they could save, that they could ration, but they would trust God daily for, like they did when they were trusting him to give them manna and to give him water. He was asking them, do you trust me more than you trust yourself, more than you trust the land, more than you trust the harvest? Do you? Do you trust God more than the abilities that he's given you? Do you trust him to supply your needs better than your employer can? Do you trust his provision beyond what your savings account has accumulated? More than a business opportunity can offer you. Do you trust God when you don't need to? When everything is fine in life and the harvest is plenty, do you still trust God? See, God doesn't want just our obedience. He wants our hearts. You can see this in the way that Jesus acted, uh, interacted with people like the Pharisees in the New Testament. He said, you're very good at obeying, but you're like whitewashed tombs. Very pretty on the inside, but inside you're like dead man's bones. What did Jesus say to the rich young ruler when he came and he claimed to have obeyed the law? Jesus acknowledged that. He said, one thing you lack is complete surrender. I have your obedience, but I don't have your heart. You treasure your things more than you will treasure me. See, he's much more concerned with our hearts 
and he is relentless in his pursuit of capture. Watch the story of Abraham when he says, God says to Abraham, Abraham, do you love your only begotten, your treasured son, more than you treasure me? To watch the story of Job when, when God literally says to Job, Job, do you treasure your health, your family, your power, your money more than you treasure me? Or what do you treasure, Job? I'm going to put you to the test. And then just a few weeks ago, we see that God commanded the wiping out of nations, that no man, woman, or child would be left breathing. Why? Because he knew they had the potential to capture their hearts. God is after our hearts. It's not just obedience. It's about loving obedience. It's about surrendered obedience. See, sometimes our tendency is to give and do just enough so that God will leave us alone in our comfortable, middle-class society. Maybe not because our heart burns for the one who burns for us or because our hearts are so overwhelmed and consumed with the nations that we're willing to go, do, and give anything so that they can experience the love that we've experienced by God. That kind of obedience is loving obedience. But it's not as if he asks of us this loving obedience and doesn't give us cause or reason to. Watch what he says in these beautiful verses. He says, you have today declared the Lord to be your God and that you would walk in his ways and keep his statutes, his commands, and his ordinances. And listen to his voice. And that the Lord today has declared you to be his people, a treasured possession. As he promised you, and that you should keep all of his commandments And he shall set you high above the nations, which he has made for for praise, fame, and honor. And that you should be a consecrated people to the Lord your God, as he has spoken. He calls us a treasured possession. A treasured possession. And when we begin to understand just these words, that that the God of the universe, the creator of the universe, would treasure us, would care for us, would love us, then we begin to understand a verse like Deuteronomy 10, 12, where it says, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord with uh, your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and to keep the commandments and as statutes which I'm commanding you today for your good. When we think and remember that we are a treasured possession, we understand verses like this where those acts of obedience that God is calling to are for our good. He doesn't need us. He wants our hearts. That God of the universe would treasure us, would care for us, would love us. I think when we think through this, when we, when we ponder that, that the creator of the universe, the God of this world, would treasure us, we're compelled to look at the cross. We look at the cross and say, God, you treasure me so much that you would die for me. 
you treasure me in a way that you would leave heaven, that you would leave everything good and come to a world where nothing is good for me. When we understand that we are a treasured possession, we're compelled to look at the cross. And I think we're compelled to remember the same things that God was asking Israel to remember. When we look at the cross, we're compelled to think, we have to think about how this is God's gift. Not by anything that we can do, not by anything that we have done, not by any good or maybe even mediocre abilities that we have in our life, but it's simply by the grace of God. That our righteousness are as filthy rags. The best that we can do is dirty. And he gave us his righteousness. And that when we look at the cross, we're compelled to look at what he gave up so that we could be in a relationship with him. That we would be loved by God. That he would give his, his head, his, his brow to some Roman thorns. That he would give his, his hands and his feet to some nails. And that he would give his side to a Roman spear. He would give his righteousness to us. When we look at the cross, when we see that we're a treasured possession, we look at what God gave us. And we have to look at where we would be without him. We have to look at the pit of sin that we must have been in. And where we say, God, if this is the only solution, if this is the only way, if the only solution is that you would send your son, your only begotten, your, your treasure, to die for me, then the problem must have been severe. I, I think when we look at the cross, we really, really understand where we must have been. If it takes... God himself to fix it. We have to remember what J.C. Ryle once said, that how dark the sin and stain must be, that only the blood of God himself could wash it clean. And I think when we remember and think that we are a treasured possession, we have to look at the cross. We have to see what God has done for us despite our obedience, despite our, our running from him, and that he gave us his righteousness, that we would become sons and daughters, heirs. We're forced to remember where we were and what we were doing, what we were capable of before he came and, and provided his son. And when we are grateful, just like the Israelites were grateful in remembering what he gave, remembering where we came from, we start to act in a way that's different. We begin to, to develop this attitude of gratitude that, that explodes into worship and it not only affects us, but affects those around us. Our obedience begins to to morph and to become loving obedience. When we look at the cross and we see, God, you gave your only life for me. You, you gave your son for me. You gave your blood, everything that you had. You gave up heaven for me. What can I not give you? You start to think, God, if this is for my good, if I'm treasured, if I'm loved by the creator of this, this universe and what God and the Bible says that God is for us, then what can we not do for you? When we understand that God loves us, that he treasures us, that he is for us, and that these commands are for our good, then we think, 
God, what can I not do for you? If you don't need me, but you want my heart, then all of these things are for my good. What can I not do? What can I not give? I'll tell you how it starts to take shape. It starts to look less like, God, are you really sure that I need to write this check? Because I've got bills. And then just in case you forgot, they're due today. And it starts to take shape like, God, you died for me. You gave your son for me. You gave your life for me. And this is, this is it? This is all you want back? I have the ability to make a wage and to make a living because of you, not because of anything good in my life. I have the ability to, to even make anything. This is all yours, God. So this is it? Really? This is all you want from me, God? What else? There has to be something else. What, what else can I give, God? Where else can I make cuts so that I can, can push more money to the nations? What else can I cut so that I can give so that others would know the love that you have shown me? I'll tell you how else it plays out. It plays out that it's the loving rebuke in those ways. We don't get emails from our pastor every six months. Telling us which children's classes going to be canceled we start to look at the cross and we start to look at what he's done for us and we say God this is it all you want me to do is teach a three year old's classes there's got to be something else That's, that's all you want back you want my heart God there has to be somewhere I can go three year old's We start to serve God because he has loved us. We start serving out of a heart of gratitude, not out of heart of obligation. When we, are, when we are wrecked by the thought that the creator of the universe calls us a treasured possession, then absolute and complete surrender is the only option. When we, when we look at the fact that God has died for us, and that everything that is written in his word is for our good. We start to give differently. We start to serve differently. We start to go differently. Our hearts turn from, God, are you sure you want me to go on the short mission trip this, this two weeks? I mean, it is over Thanksgiving break. To God, are you sure? Are you sure that I can stay in Wake Forest? There has to be some place on earth that doesn't know who you are. There has to be somewhere I could go to share your love and your heart with the world who does not know it. Are you sure, God, that I can, you want me to stay here? It's really comfortable here, God. Are you sure you don't want me to go? We start to serve differently. We start to go differently. We start to give differently. When we look at the cross, when we take a long, hard look at the cross and see how treasured we are, everything is different. See, I'm convinced that the church's root of disobedience is not that it's just outward rebellion, but I'm convinced that the church's main problem and the church's main root of disobedience is just forgetting 
and not looking at the cross. Because when we look at the cross and we look long and hard at what he gave us and what he, how he treasures us, the way that he loves us, we are compelled to obey. Absolute surrender is the only option. When we understand that we are loved by this creator, when we are loved by this God who loves us in this way, that he is for us, what can we not do? What can we not do? I'm convinced that if we would just look at the cross, that our obedience would be moved into disobedience would be moved into obedience. And I have a feeling that if the church, if we would just ponder the cross and ponder the ways that he has loved us and lavished it on us, this half-hearted obedience that, that reeks in our lives and that is so uh, prevalent to, to, to come and sneak up on us will be transformed into loving obedience because we look at our loving God. When we see how loving he is, the only response is loving obedience. If you don't obey in love, then you probably haven't looked at the loving God. If you're having problems in your heart with obedience, if you're running from God, it's probably because it's been too long since you've looked at the cross. Romans 5.8 says that he demonstrated his love for us. He demonstrated it. He proved it. That when we were sinners, he died for us. Ephesians 1 says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses and sins according to the riches of grace that he has lavished on us. Colossians 1.3 says that he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. Isaiah 28.16 says that if whoever believes in him will not disappointed when you trust and believe and hope in Christ everything else in life becomes insignificant as God asked the, the children of Israel to, to remember him I think we're compelled in our lives when it comes to obedience when obedience becomes difficult that we would remember him. And if ever we find our, our, our place in life struggling with absolute surrender, to just look at the cross. To look at that we are a treasured possession. And that he is for our stand with us. Let's remember his love.
jealous for me Love's like a hurricane I am a tree Bending beneath The weight of his wind and mercy When all of a sudden I am unaware of his afflictions Eclipsed by glory And I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections are 